Well, go ahead and grab a seat. Man, that instrumental, uh, it just made me wish I knew how to tango my way out onto stage. I was like, that would have been the perfect compliment to this morning. Uh, I just want to take a moment and let everybody know that Heidi Martin, our ministry coordinator, is back from her maternity leave. Yes. Everything is just a little more organized now. And uh, I want to thank, though, Jyoti and Richard uh, for filling in while she was gone. Uh, they did a fantastic job, and we're just so glad to have you back, Heidi. And uh, it's been really good. Uh, oh, my name's Alistair, if we've never met. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, after the service, come say hi. I'd love to put a name to your face and hear a bit of, about what brought you here this morning. Uh, now, maybe it is just a bit of childhood folklore, but did you ever know the kid who would quit playing when the game wasn't going their way? Anyone? You know, the kid who would say, I'm taking the ball home with me, you know, or the board game or the video game or the tennis ball with a hole drilled in it so you could fill it with gasoline and kick it around. You know, whatever game you played as a kid, you know, maybe you knew this kid, maybe you were that kid and you're welcome here, there's grace for you, but the kid who won't play unless, unless it's played according to their rules or unless the game is going their way and in their favor. In the passage we just read from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35, Jesus draws our attention to the people who won't play unless, unless it's their game and their rules. And they won't play along because the gospel that Jesus proclaims upends all the religious games they were accustomed to playing. They're not going to play with it. Now, at the core of our passage is the question that is almost always at the core of every passage in the Gospel of Luke. Who is Jesus? Luke brings us back to this question again and again because how we answer this question has ramifications for our lives, who we think we are, what our purpose is in the world, and how we make sense of life in a world that is so often troubled. And in our passage, we see very clearly that some of the religious elites of his day, they really struggled with who Jesus is. But to our surprise, John the Baptist is also among those confused about who Jesus is. So I have three things I want to consider about our passage this morning. Doubt, rejection, and friendship. Doubt, rejection, and friendship. Uh, let's begin with doubt. If you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 7. If you don't, uh, grab one of the great church Bibles and take it home with you. Everything will be on the screen behind me. Uh, Luke writes in chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So this is just a quick snapshot of the situation. John the Baptist is in jail. He's been imprisoned by Herod uh, for saying unpopular things that prophets say, like, hey, you shouldn't marry your brother's wife. And while in prison, John's uh, disciples are reporting to him how Jesus is progressing as the Messiah. They report these things. 
Most likely, they've just told John about recent events, like what we read about last week, Jesus miraculously healing a Gentile centurion servant, or Jesus raising a widow's son from the dead. You know, they're reporting small little things like miracles of healing and resurrection. But, to our surprise, it's of little comfort to John. Instead, John sends two of his disciples back to Jesus to ask, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? It appears John expected more than miracles from Jesus. John expected more than miracles from Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Because so many of us, I know this from talking with you, We're desperate for a miracle, and the lack thereof is a source of doubt. But here, John hears story after story of abounding miracles, but something is still gnawing at him inside. I think we should pay attention to that. Perhaps it's because John hasn't seen the miracles firsthand for himself. But to me, it seems more likely that it's something else. I think for John... Jesus doesn't appear to be living up to the promises about the Messiah. And it's significant that John sends two of his disciples back to ask Jesus this question, because based on the book of Deuteronomy, this gives it a bit of a legal tone. You know, in a sense, John wants Jesus to take the stand and testify. John wants a binding answer before the appropriate amount of witnesses. So you have to ask, what changed for John? Now, John has shifted from being this brave and defiant prophet out in the wilderness saying bold things to someone who wants Jesus to take the hot seat. You know, he's the one who's set apart to prepare the way for the Messiah, and now he's the one asking, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? John has doubt. And given his reputation, it's this beautiful reminder that doubt is not some sort of fatal flaw. Neither is questioning Jesus. And if you think about it, I mean, if you think about John's situation, there's legitimate reasons for his doubt. Now, for example, John believes that Jesus is the Messiah that is going to fulfill the promises of God revealed through the prophet Isaiah. And he's probably heard that Jesus himself even said, I fulfill all these promises in Isaiah 61. These promises about the Messiah, like he's going to proclaim liberty to the captive and opening of the prison for those who are bound. And keep in mind, John is in prison. John finds himself in an unsurprising situation as a prophet. That that he could probably wrap his mind around. But as a prophet preparing the way for the Messiah... It seems like his situation is the reverse of what the Messiah is supposed to be doing, opening up the prisons. But more so, John believes that the Messiah is going to be a descendant of King David, who's going to establish an everlasting kingdom on earth. So yeah, it's great that miracles are happening, but where is the political upheaval? Where is the toppling of Israel's enemies? Where is the throne that establishes the perfect rule of God on earth? We have to understand that the the style and the way that Jesus was the Messiah didn't, didn't meet any of the varied expectations of ancient Israel about what the Messiah would be like and how he would behave. 
it produced a lot of confusion and doubt among many people, including John. And so here's the point I want us to take to heart. There is nothing wrong with doubt. There is nothing wrong with doubt. Deconstruction is a big umbrella phrase these days, and in many cases of deconstruction, uh, people are rightfully examining or reevaluating what they actually believe because they have doubts and they actually have legitimate reason for these doubts. Now, here are just a few identified by Tim Suttle, who's a pastor and theologian. Politics. You know, when the church develops an unhealthy bond to a particular platform or party. Uh, sexuality. When the church shows no compassion or openness towards experiences that aren't uniform to traditional marriage. Racism. When the church has been and still is complicit in all manners of racism and racial injustice. Climate change. And when the church moves towards the exploitation of creation rather than its stewardship. Injury and trauma. And when the church abuses power, including the abuse of children, and has not adequately confessed or repented, or character. You know, when the church is rightfully accused of corruption and hypocrisy and immaturity and nationalism and violence and arrogance and cruelty. And, and so Tim Suttle has more than this list, but politics and sexuality and racism and climate change and injury and trauma and, and character. And so when someone deconstructs their faith, often it's not just one, but all of these things overlapping in some way, and they start looking at what they profess to believe, and they look at the world and how it's being lived out, at least in some contexts, and think, I don't want to be associated with this. Or, hopefully better than that, they say, I have to step back and reevaluate what I belong to and what this is actually all about and what Jesus actually says. And when doubt leads to inquiry, to learning, to asking questions of Jesus like John did, I want to suggest, as others smarter than me have, that a better phrase than deconstruction, a better phrase than deconstruction is simply discipleship. It's discipleship. John shows us that we will question Jesus at times. And we'll have to reorient our expectations around him about who he is and what he's all about and how he goes about things. And here's the good thing. Jesus isn't put off by John's doubts, is he? It's not an affront to him. He doesn't take offense. He doesn't get guarded and lash back at John. Jesus answers him. But if you look at Jesus' answer in verses 21 through 23, it seems that Jesus just reiterates what John's disciples have likely already told him. The blind are receiving their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have good news preached to them. John has likely heard this all already. And Jesus says, yes, these are signs that signify I'm the Messiah. But Jesus adds something crucial. He says, and blessed is the one who's not offended or scandalized by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is the key for John and him finding comfort in prison, and it is the key for us. There is a blessedness. There is a 
it is well with you reality for people who align themselves with Jesus and aren't offended by him or scandalized by him. Because the miracles he's performing, as he's saying, they are just signs, they're precursors of the everlasting kingdom that he will establish on earth. And so Jesus is essentially saying to John, yes, I am the one, but don't stumble over the way I'm doing things. And here's why it is good news for those of us who doubt. Even though it's a soft correction, here's why it's good news. We can take offense or be offended by the church and the tragic failures of the church and the countless ways the church, the endless ways the church falls short of the ways of Jesus because Jesus doesn't say, blessed is the one who is not offended or scandalized by the church. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended or scandalized by me. And so when discipleship leads us to sort through the things that offend us within the church or possible misreadings of scripture or imported political biases or agendas, when this process helps us discover or rediscover Jesus afresh, it's profoundly healthy and necessary. When our doubts lead to inquiry and they bring us to Jesus to ask questions and we gain understanding about who he's really about and what he's really about and who he really is, I want to say that is good. Or to echo scripture, it is very good. So long as we're deconstructing and evaluating these things for the sake of getting back to our foundation, Jesus himself. But please don't be mistaken here. We can take offense at the church at times, but Jesus doesn't let us forsake her. You see, healthy discipleship always takes place within a community of faith pursuing him together. And I realize like, that can be hard to do, especially when your issues are with the church. And here I'm like, hey, don't throw the church out. I understand that. But I sincerely believe you can build trust within the church. You can build trust with a few individuals. You can develop friendships where there's room for your doubts and questions to be graciously explored. I've seen this happen at this place time and time again. So I just want to say for those of you who have doubt and are deconstructing and you've stuck around, like I realize that takes courage and I realize that's not easy and I'm really grateful you're here. And for all of us who have questions and doubt, I hope you'll find the courage to share those with one another and journey toward Jesus together. Now, when Jesus answers John, let's be honest, he doesn't give an answer that assuages all of John's doubts. John's not even going to live long enough to see Jesus fulfill his mission as the Messiah. And so John will have to live his life with faith and doubt together, just like we're going to have to live our lives. Because we will not always find answers that settle our doubts. Yet, and here's what we also have to be honest about, in examining our doubts, in seeking answers, we might not actually like what we find. You might not like what, you ha- uh, what Jesus has to say. I'm pretty sure this wasn't a totally satisfying answer for John. And so when we're brought to the point of taking offense over Jesus over his message or the message of scripture, when we find ourselves at a crossroads, we have to make a choice. Do we align ourselves with Jesus and his word or do we reject him and God's revelation? Because I guarantee you, 
100%. If you press into what Jesus actually says and how the church has historically understood what he says, there will be answers that cause you to take offense. There will be answers you do not want to hear. So let's turn to our second point then, rejection. Having thought about doubt, let's turn to rejection. So once John's messengers leave, Jesus turns to the crowd to teach them about John. And he says, who did you go out to see in the wilderness? You know, did you go to see a man dressed in soft clothing? You know, or did you go to see a prophet? And I tell you, you saw more than a prophet. You saw the prophet of prophets. He's, he's the one who's preparing the way for the Messiah. That's who you went to see. The one that Isaiah and Malachi prophesied about hundreds of years before he arrived, John the Baptist. And then Luke adds this parathetical. Look at verses 29 through 30. I always love it when scripture rarely has like these brackets, like just going to say, like in Mark, it's like the let the reader understand. I'm like, I don't understand. But here Luke gives us brackets and it makes pretty good sense. Verses 29 through 30. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So some people will not play along. Some people just refuse to play. Some people declare God just. In other words, they say God is good and right in what he has done in and through John and Jesus. And other people reject the purposes of God for themselves. And the people who refuse to play along, the very ones who reject the purposes of God for themselves, Jesus says this in verses 31 through 34. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so the problem with the people who reject him, at least according to Jesus, is they never had any intention of playing along to begin with. You know, the, the band can play a tango and no one tangos. You know, John the Baptist eats and drinks. He has a demon, they say. You know, or he doesn't eat and drink. He has a demon and Jesus eats and drinks. Ah, oh, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so it doesn't matter what John or Jesus do. They will criticize it. They will stand against it. They won't play the game unless it's played according to their rules. If we play a happy song, you sing along. If we play a sad song, you weep. You play our game. We're not playing yours. But neither John or Jesus are going to comply. Because they're not concerned about the religious games of their day and how some people conceive the rules. John and Jesus are unified in playing their part in God bringing his great salvation to the world. So of course, if that is what is happening in and through Jesus, God reconciling the entire world to himself, if that's actually happening in and through Jesus, which is what I believe and many of us believe, why do people reject it? Why would anyone, if they understand what is being promised, reject salvation? 
the restoration of our lives and the entire world into God's shalom, lasting peace, unending wellness, and eternal blessing. And if these people that Jesus is speaking to actually witnessed the miracles, which we have to presume many of them did, how could they remain critics? Do you want to know the first fight Julia and I had once we were married? Any guesses as to what it was all about? Dishes. Dishes. Veganism. <laughs> out of nowhere, one afternoon, Julia innocently said, I might try veganism. And that was it. I got activated. I responded with what we now call big feelings. And let me be clear, I don't have any problem with people who practice veganism. In fact, I respect them and the reasons why, and I wish I had that kind of character. And I knew, however, that if Julia went vegan, it ultimately meant that I would at least have to functionally become vegan too. And my love for Texas barbecue and smoked meat runs deep. But even deeper was a bigger issue for me. I had an unspoken commitment that made me reject her purposes for veganism. I love me some cheese. I could not imagine a new game in town that did not include cheese. You see, whether or not we are consciously aware of it, often when someone rejects Jesus, it's because they have unspoken commitments. Commitments to playing a different game than the one Jesus is playing. The religious elite in this passage, so the Pharisees and the scribes and the lawyers, they had commitments to influence, to power, to authority, to control, to their perception of truth and reality. And this is why Jesus points out that their response is predetermined. It doesn't matter what Jesus does. They're going to critique and oppose it. They have no intention of playing along because they reject Jesus because they rejected John. And it goes deeper. They rejected John because they rejected his baptism. And by rejecting his baptism, they rejected his message of repentance. And by rejecting his message of repentance, they were denying their sinfulness and their need for forgiveness and a need for a savior. You see, the religious elites who rejected Jesus held deep, unspoken commitments to building a life that proved they aren't sinners in need of forgiveness and grace. So they played the religious game. Some of them, they kept the rules, they kept up appearances, they defined their goodness in comparison to those who didn't play the game with the same rigor and pomp and show. And sinners and all kinds of outsiders served the purpose of propping them up as better than, holier than thou. Friends, it's a vulnerable thing to admit that in our heart of hearts and in our innermost being, in the places we dare not show, we are in fact sinners. And so we may cover this up by playing religious games or other games that allow us to bury the truth about who we are, to cover it up or to at least gloss it up. So you might use relationships or career or talent or your knowledge or your looks or whatever you love, but you build up a facade that props you up, props us all up to look better than we are, a facade that protects us from facing the fact that deep in our core, we are still people who reject our creator in countless ways and continuously, ceaselessly live for ourselves and our own wants and our own desires. And if we're not prepared to admit to this vulnerability, if we're not prepared to let the facade crumble, if we're not ready to stop playing the games we're going to play, 
we will reject Jesus. We will resist his message. But if we can admit to this vulnerability of sinfulness, Scripture is saying, Jesus is saying, we're going to be more open to confession and repentance and receptive to belief in him. You see, ultimately, when you reject God, it's because of a stubborn reluctance to listen to God. And I don't say that as a judgment over you. Hear it more as a confession of my own soul. In his day, nobody rejected Jesus due to a lack of evidence. The miracles were undeniable. The reason people rejected him was stubborn arrogance. I refuse to change. I don't need to change. I don't need this message of repentance and forgiveness. Now, if you're wondering, well, how can I say such critical things about those who rejected Jesus? How can I reduce this down to the issue of sin? Isn't this just like evangelical Christianity reading sinfulness into everything? I believe we can say the issue is sinfulness with confidence, and here's why. Look at what the religious elite themselves call Jesus in verse 34. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. They had a problem with Jesus because he was a friend of sinners. And in particular, tax collectors, the worst of them all. This was an insult from them. And what I love about Jesus is he takes an insult and he turns it into a badge of honor. One of the most beloved titles we now have for our Lord is one that was originally found on the lips of his critics. But what does this show us? It shows us they got it. They understood what Jesus was all about. And they would not and could not be a part of it because sinners was a different category of people. They were above the sinners. The sinners are the problem in the world, not them. Sinners are beneath them. They couldn't admit that they were a part of this category of people. And I want to say, as people continue to reject Jesus, the reality hasn't changed. It's not ultimately an intellectual issue. I understand, like, there will be intellectual things you've got to work through. But at its core, the rejection of Jesus is always an emotional and moral issue. It's an unwillingness to admit that before the God of the universe, we are, we are sinners in need of forgiveness, in need of grace. Sinners in need of the friendship that Jesus came to offer. So let's turn to our final point, friendship. And this is what is so wonderful about Jesus in this passage. He is the friend of sinners. It's not an insult to him. It's a badge of honor. Jesus, God incarnate, God himself, the son of God is a friend of sinners. And as the friend of sinners, Jesus does two things. Well, actually three, but I'll start with two and then sneak in a third. First, Jesus bestows sight. It's easy to run past that, but Jesus bestows sight. In verse 21, in the Greek, it's literally, he graces sight. And so the, this verb, it's not just about the physical healing of the blind, because that's called out separately as well. It includes the physical healing of the blind, but it's more. As Jesus proclaims 
his message, another miracle that Jesus performs is that he opens our hearts and our eyes. He can bestow sight for people who don't see who he is to be able to see who he is. So, so often we think, oh, I have to figure out who Jesus is, and we should. We should try to bridge that gap between what we don't know about Jesus and who he is as much as possible, but there will always be a gap until we cry out, Lord, help me in my unbelief, open my eyes to see you, that I might truly know who you are because I can't see you by my own power alone. And guess what? That's a miracle Jesus will perform time and time again. He bestows sight. He bestows sight. He graces sight. If you see Jesus for who he is, it's not because you're so particularly intelligent. Most people won't even think that, just to be honest. It's because he has bestowed sight on you. He's graced sight on you because it's always gift upon gift and grace that we receive. But if we get bestowed sight, if we see Jesus for who he is, then we start to see ourselves for who we are. If our sight's restored, we will see that we are indeed poor and needy sinners. But not just sinners, befriended sinners. Because Jesus, the friend of sinners, he's eager to befriend us, to be with us, to meet us, even in our darkest places. We always stand before our friend. The power of his grace has opened our eyes to see that he is full of mercy and compassion and love for us in our weakness. Even when we were enemy, enemies, Paul says that Christ loved us and died for us when we were at our worst. And therefore, as our friend, he's our friend. Nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. You can't come up with anything that will ever separate you from the friendship of Christ because that's how good of a friend he is to you. It's undeserved. It's unwarranted. It's unmerited. And that's why we call it grace. It's gift. It's just a gift. This is why at the cross, at the very least, it's a profound demonstration of friendship. Jesus dies for his friends so they can be forgiven and welcomed home for all time. And second, so Jesus bestows sight for his friends. Second, as our friend, Jesus elevates us to greatness. Now, don't worry. I'm not about to go like Insta Instagram influencer on you. Different kind of greatness. Earlier in our passage, Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. It's a bit of a head scratcher, right? Here's what one scholar writes. Presence in the kingdom changes and elevates everyone who shares in it. The point of this remark is not only to explain John's greatness, but above all, to show the greatness of the coming kingdom when all relative scales of evaluation will be rewritten. Those reborn in the kingdom are greater than the greatest person born by human generation. In other words, when Jesus befriends us, our identity is completely redefined. We are not just sinners, as I've already said, we're his friends. We are loved, full stop. We cannot stoop so low as to be beyond the love of God, and we cannot ascend so high as to be worthy of the love of God Jesus meets us with his love and loves us through and through. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ 
Jesus. Who are you? You're a befriended sinner of the Lord. You're a beloved child of God if you're a friend of Jesus. So as our friend, Jesus opens our eyes. He graciously gives us sight. And he gives us a new identity as befriended sinners, beloved children. But as our friend, Jesus also opens the space for us to confide in him. And most of you know, a beloved member of our church, Don Lewis, died a few months ago. Uh, and, and more than most people I've known, you know, Don showed me what it means to be a friend of sinners, because he was friends with me. And more times than I can count, I sat with Don and opened up just the darkest parts of my heart, my struggles, my doubts, my anger, my hurt, my sin. And with Don, I could speak without filter, just raw candor, and he never shrunk back. He was never repulsed. He simply listened. He sometimes offered a gracious correction or his take, but very rarely. He always offered me friendship and love and prayer. Um, and I, I've just had this gnawing sorrow and emptiness without Don since coming back from sabbatical. Part of me was like, you know what? I'm not going to come back. I can't do this without Don. And there's been multiple times when all I want to do is pick up the phone and, and call Don, or I think he's just away on Galliano. He's going to come back. And I've needed his friendship. And it's been in those moments that you know, Jesus tenderly reminds me he's my friend. And so, in those moments, I've sat with Jesus. I literally sit with him. I pour myself a cup of coffee and I sit in my, sorry, Julia's rocking chair. And I talk to him. For the outsider, it looks like I'm just speaking to the air. But in my heart of hearts, I know I'm talking to my friend. And I pour my heart out to him. And I listen. I listen to his word. And I wait eagerly for his spirit. And I find solace, great solace and promises like, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the Lord who says, A bruised reed I will not break, a smoldering wick I will not quench. This is my friend speaking to me. This is our friend speaking to you. I miss Don terribly. He's irreplaceable. But through his absence, I'm reminded afresh our best friendships can help make the friendship of Jesus more tangible for us. And our best friendships, present or absent, are always signs of the friendship that Jesus offers. And so my point is this. You can confide in a friend like Jesus. A friend who forgives you and loves you and elevates you to true greatness, a beloved friend of God himself. We have a friend who turns insults into titles, into badges of honor that he wears because he loves us. We have a friend who's not worried about our doubts. He welcomes them. We have a friend who's not even put off by our rejection. He'll engage it. You can confide in him with your grief, with your depression, your anxiety, 
your despair, your gladness, your joy, your love, and your hope because as your friend, he cares about you. He cares about you. So once again, Luke wrote his gospel to help us answer the question, who is Jesus? And in our passage, this is who he is. The at times confusing, often rejected friend of sinners. He's the friend of sinners. And you can know his friendship. So come to him with your doubts. But most of all, come to him with repentance and faith. And come eager to play with grace. Because that's the game. And together, may we join the chorus of tax collectors and sinners that say God is just, he is good and right in what he has done in Christ, our friend. Let's pray.